Being the Worst, Episode 22, recorded Thursday, January 17th, 2013. From beingtheworst.com, it's the Being the Worst podcast. Audio apprenticeships for the aspiring software craftsman. With your hosts, Carrie Street and Renata Bulit. In this episode, Carrie and Renat discuss the problem space, bounded context within it, subdomains, and the core domain of getting things done. After the DDD discussion, they dive into the initial approach to structuring the code, exploring the published language, and making sense of information flows. And now, here are Carrie and Renat. I'm basically better, but you know, it just sounds like you, same problem, you got a little bit of leftover stuff he knows and a cough here and there once in a while. Yeah. Welcome back from the biohazard oh, well, zone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I should leave that in there. Uh, Renat. <laughs> Renat. <clears throat> oh, man, that's funny. All right. <laughs> I got to stop laughing. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, recording already? Yeah, well, the recorder's going, yeah, but of course I'll delete some of this. But uh, all right. Hey, Renat. Well, uh, happy new year. I don't think I've, we haven't recorded an episode in uh, 2013 yet. I, we had a backlog to get edited and out there. So as far as our listeners are concerned, uh, we've been putting out episodes, but we haven't actually talked in almost a month. So uh, hope you had a good new year. I know we've both uh, been a little under the weather the last couple of weeks, so we haven't been able to record until now. So um, how are you doing? You still there? Well, yes. Minus the fact that UFA these days uh, has turned kind of into a biohazard zone with a series of flus, which were pretty bad this year. But we're getting better, although the temperatures are still below minus 20. <laughs> so temperatures still suck, and um, the wind is blowing your flu and disease over to us because now we're declaring uh, states of emergencies and disaster and all this stuff, and people panicking for flu shots, so... It sounds like a perfect environment to stay inside and uh, learn about aggregates with event sourcing. So, um, yeah. in the last episode that we published, episode 21, the homework was to basically take some of the vocabulary words in the ubiquitous language that we started and uh, try to start messing around with the commands and events that we can think of, et cetera, et cetera, similar to what we did in the factory. And because we both went on holiday break after that episode and did all the normal stuff, I haven't actually started doing that homework yet, but I noticed on GitHub that you actually did start doing that homework. So instead of waiting for me to start doing that, in this episode, we're going to go over basically the beginnings of that solution and what you've done so far, right? Yeah. Cool. And uh, for the reference to the listeners of the episode, that's going to be episode 22. So in the episode notes, there will be a link to a tag in the GitHub repository. Because in this journey, or what was the name, Expedition, being the worst part two module, mm-hmm. yep. we're going to continue developing over the same code base as opposed to copying the code base for episode samples. Yes. And so uh, to make sure that while listening to the episode, uh, you'll see the repository exactly as it were at the specific uh, point in time, we'll have a tag or branch, not, sh- not sure exactly which which strategy we'll use, but in essence, there'll be a link to the state of the repository, which we want you to see. 
Yes, as it was when we discussed it right now, which is uh, well, uh, maybe with a few small tweaks, but still, right? Exactly the what you intended to have that snapshot in time, and that will be uh, this is actually episode twenty two, as you mentioned. So somehow under those show links, we will uh, get you that direct link to the Git uh, repository. Yep, cool. Yep. Okay. Uh, so uh, when I was starting this uh, solution, like. I opened the solution. Mm-hmm. I uh, imported the latest version of uh, the code DSL generator, which Ufa team of Locat actually tweaked a little bit later uh, to make it slightly more usable. Mm-hmm. So actually, now when you start it, it sits in the train notification, and if there are builds or if there are code generation failures or successes, they show up in the small notification pop-up from the tray. Oh, from the tray. So it sounds like yeah. the team even has updated it because I know you broke that out on Locad's uh, GitHub site into its own tool, yes. and I haven't downloaded that in about a month and a half, so it's been changed since then. Yes, yeah, slightly. And uh, so, uh, and what do we? So how would, if I want to just launch that tool by itself right now? What's the right way to do that now? Uh, so in the getting things on repository mm-hmm. in the folder, there is DSL.cmd. Whenever you want to modify a DDD file, uh, the file with uh, code contracts. Mm-hmm. Uh, message definitions for the domain language, uh, look at style. Uh, so basically, you just launch the command batch, mm-hmm. and it will launch the DSL generator in the background. That's it. Oh, cool. So you still launch it the same way that you did before, but uh, what I just did right now, which is really cool, is uh, it's still possible the DOS window as usual or command window as usual. But yeah, I got this little cool tray icon, DSL started, the lookup path, da, da, da. So uh, pretty slick. Nice job, guys. Okay, and kudos go here to Alex uh, Zazerski of Ufa Team. Like Thanks. he was the, do, the one doing updates here. Thanks, Alex. Okay, so when I was starting, like I didn't, I have no idea how the project will look uh, months from now. I have no idea if the current iteration is will be a success or if it will be discarded completely. So the first steps that you do is you get out the DDD create the messages DDD file, and you start trying to uh, define your aggregate boundaries. You start def- trying to define the messages and contracts and to see how they fit together. So I started by creating two projects. One was called Getting Things Done, that published language. Mm-hmm. And the other one being called JTD.CoreDomain. Those are literally, guys, projects in Visual Studio, Visual Studio projects. Yes. So published language project is the folder that contains contracts for all the messages and base class for the messages and value objects that will be needed to be understood and used by any component or subsystems that wants to work with the core domain. Either work with the core domain locally, like in offline client scenario, or like send commands or push events to the server in case of the client server configurations. Okay. Okay, so uh, this published language project, it contains base classes for the messages, and actual messages DDD file. Okay. Okay, so for now, the initial decision was to actually introduce a new entity called tenant. Like, you know, in uh, there are multi-tenant applications where you can have multiple customers, multiple uh, systems uh, running under one deployment. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our case, a, a tenant would be the entire set of projects and actions and contacts which are linked to one account. Mm-hmm. Well, for now, at least for one account. Right. So in this case, so the entire getting things done context for one user for, or for one customer or whatever uh, will be residing in one aggregate called tenant. Okay. And if we ever need to actually scale this out, well, we can think about that. But so far, 
from my experience, in all these getting things uh, done tools, you usually have either one file or one database per uh, the entire set of actions and uh, projects and contexts that you have inside. And this way, we actually will be able to ensure aggregate invariance, like aggregate rules within this tenant. So, for instance, if we're moving an action between multiple projects, then we can do that in one operation because this entire operation happens within boundaries of the aggregate. Mm-hmm. An aggregate, in this case, is a tenant. This aggregate will be residing inside the core domain, which actually matches to the bounded context of getting things done problem space. Mm-hmm. So, bounded context is boundary or an area within the problem space, within the something that we're trying to tackle. And we identify this boundary by thinking about the language, by thinking about the consistent uh, set of concepts that link together. In this case, the set of concepts is uh, getting things done concepts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we identified that these concepts belong to the core domain. So uh, we will t- try to develop a project, a coherent solution to the problem. And this solution is a subdomain, which is the, the most important one. Hence, it's called core domain. Okay. So uh, once again, problem space, it's a set of challenges that we're trying to address. It's something that we're trying to tackle. And we identify boundaries. We divide the problem space in separate contexts. And we call them bounded contexts. And then we try to handle them individually and separately, right? like divide and conquer. And each handling, each solution, it's usually called subdomain. And ideally, for each problem, we'll have a specific solution. So in the, in the domain of getting things done, is that one bounded context? Or is solving the problem for getting things done going to have multiple bounded contexts? Okay, so when we started, we identified that there is a core domain of getting things done mm-hmm. with the David Allen's methodology, according to the David Allen's language. Yes. So uh, that's one, one bounded context. And we'll have probably one subdomain, well, which is our core domain. So it's, it, it's called not subdomain, but core domain. Mm-hmm. Tr- handles this entire problem. Then a specific bounded context, we identified also other bounded contexts. Like, for instance, there was like this fluffy uh, yeah, language. The, yeah, the hobbyist thing. Yeah, the hobbyist thing. Mm-hmm. So this will be a separate bounded context. Mm-hmm. It will be used different. And the implementation will actually depend on the core domain. It will just provide like slightly different uh, interface. Then we also identify one more bounded context, uh, which is called user management registrations. So uh, that will be a supporting domain. So that's a separate bounded context. And for this separate bounded context, we'll uh, develop a separate project, a separate solution. Mm-hmm. And it will be residing in a different domain. All subdomains are contained within one bounded context or some bounded context. They don't just float around outside of a bounded context, do they? Uh, actually, it can happen in legacy systems. For instance, in a legacy system, you can have multiple like inherent uh, problem spaces, but you can have one-size-fits-all enterprise solution that tries to solve all problems at once. Okay, I'm about to ask what might be a really stupid question, but it's always confused me, so I'm going to ask it. So... A lot of the time when we're talking about these things in these conversations, we really do use the word domain a lot, subdomain, core domain, generic domain, domain model, like domains everywhere, right? Domain-driven design. And when I'm glancing through the book sometimes and hearing people talk about it, I get a little confused as to, 
okay, when we're talking about the domain model, which is supposed to be like this really important thing, it's our domain model. Sometimes I hear it referred to as the domain model is this giant big picture thing that's the model of all these things across all these bounded contexts. And then another context, it seems like they're saying, no, the domain model is very specific to a specific core domain, subdomain within a bounded context or wherever it is. Is it both? Is it one or the other? Is it neither? What the heck are we calling a domain model? <laughs> I'd say a domain model, it's a vision. And you can say that domain model is the collection of all the subdomains that you've built, subdomains that you actually represented somehow. Okay. Basically, it's a domain model. It's a model that was created using domain-driven design. Okay. That's it. It doesn't identify any specific type of solution. Uh, and... I might be wrong, but like the way I always approach these definitions, domain, it's something that we're trying to solve and at the same time, the solution. So it's just a way to look at things. In this sample in Expedition 2, would you then say that we are trying to create the domain model to solve all the various problems that we find in various bounded contexts for the getting things done approach? I would avoid actually using like throwing domain and domain model uh, back and forth mm -hmm. uh, because like these these terms are quite ambiguous. Uh, we'll use instead more specific words. So we identified the problem, the area of implementing getting things done methodology, mm -hmm. and within this bounded context, our core domain, our implementation, our solution will be focusing on getting things done methodology using uh, David Allen's terminology. Understood. So that's our core domain, okay. core domain of this uh, entire uh, endeavor, entire expedition. And the, the way you described it a moment ago, it sounds like a core domain is the exact same thing as a subdomain technically. It just happens to be called the core domain because of its relative importance to the solution. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. So within the problem space, we try to divide the problem space into separate bounded contexts so that they can be handled separately. And if there are no existing solutions there, we develop new subdomains. If there are existing solutions, maybe we can leverage some component and it will fit into that one or two bounded contexts. Mm -hmm. And depending on the type of the solution we fit in, we give different categories to these subdomains. So subdomain is a solution. So core domain is a type of subdomain that is essential to our business. Got it. It's, like, it's the most important value. It's something that we really need. So subdomains are like some solutions that we're applying to the problem. Mm -hmm. And we give them solution, these solutions like their own boundaries so that we'll not have to ha handle all the problems at once. And different types of solutions based on their importance and based on if we can actually reuse something existing stuff or uh, based on how they interact with each other, they have different names. Mm -hmm. So a uh, core domain is the most important subdomain. We identify it, we distinguish it by uh, calling that this subdomain is core domain. Got it. And usually, like, if in your system, if in your uh, business environment, you, like, looked at the problem space, you've identified some uh, certain boundaries there, and you're looking, okay, where do I apply uh, DDD methodology? If it's worth it, then it's worth starting at the core domain. Ideally, like, core domain is the area that brings your company the most value. It's an area where you have to excel. If you fail at the core domain, then the entire business fails. Yes, and I would just point the listeners to, um, it turns out that I, I had forgotten 
that at the end of episode 21, we started to get into more of these terms that we're elaborating on right now. So I opened up the blue book, Eric Evans's book, Domain Driven Design, and chapter 14 is your friend on these topics. So I would highly recommend at the very least glancing through chapter 14 because it does uh, talk about these things. But even after I read that quickly, Renat, I was uh, looking forward to talk to you about how you currently interpret those definitions because until Vaughn's book comes out to give you specific implementation examples, it's still pretty abstract and you need sort of some concrete stuff to really get it, in my opinion. So looking at the existing solution, it seems like it's more of a matter of convenience because you know the concept of a tenant, which is currently in our core domain project, um, that's not necessarily anything that gives you a competitive advantage. It's sort of it's actually pretty common to almost any software as a service thing. So is it just there because it's going to really be the aggregate that contains all of our stuff that really actually matters as our competitive advantage? Uh, it's there because I couldn't come up with a better name for now. <laughs> okay. Tenant, I think, is, the, is a good name. It's just my understanding of the core domain was that that's pretty much the when I hear Greg and you guys talk about it, it it's that piece of your domain that, that everyone's kind of agreeing is your core business value that you maybe wouldn't even want to share with anyone. It's uh, you know, it's it's your secret sauce that makes you the money that's really important that you want to spend your time on. And tenant doesn't... Um, Sounds like this. Exactly, yeah. Well, uh, once again, this is an endeavor. Like, that's my first iteration. I never tried or thought about being uh, excellent at that. I was just started pushing things together to see how they work out, to see how, if I properly understand the model, and how this abstract model of getting things done approach can be reflected into the code. If I heard you correctly, though, the tenant aggregate is where sort of all these other keywords in the ubiquitous language that we talked about last episode is going to start residing, right? Yeah, so uh, okay. tenant is our thingy. Uh, a tenant is a thing where one person will keep his uh, all actions and projects. Mm-hmm. And people will have different tenants. Yes. So I had no idea how to name this thing, and I knew that you'll be uh, looking at the code, and you have a habit of uh, arriving to better names. <laughs> uh, Got it. Well, yeah, I can, I'll try to understand the definition of a... Because you said people will have different tenants, or is it true that one person is a tenant, you know, one-to-one? Uh, it's like getting things done. It's a methodology for personal efficiency, for yeah. personal product- productivity. Yes. Uh, there is no real need for one person to have more than one tenant. Agreed. Uh, and, uh, it's a thing for personal productivity. So there is no real need for two people to have one tenant. Entire getting things done for one person. Yes. As opposed to in maybe the SaaS models that you're familiar with, one tenant might be a whole company with a bunch of employees inside of it. In this case, it's going to be carries the company and the, and the only person. <laughs> so, And actually, the most awesome thing is that I didn't actually uh, realize this definition of a tenant. Like, it's that it's an uh, instance of getting things done with adult implementation one person till we started talking right now. Oh, cool. And actually, like, when we're talking, we're using already starting to use ubiquitous language. Mm-hmm. And we're like the ubiquitous language here is evolving. And as we've learned from the previous being the worst episodes, this ubiquitous language later will be mapping directly to the projects, to the classes, to the method names in the code. So it's like different aspects, different uh, perspectives of facets of core domain uh, implementation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Awesome. Uh, and just to finish slightly earlier the discussion, so we have different solutions to the problems we face and the solution that we generally have to develop ourselves it addresses the most important problem for the business. So that's core domain. If we can find 
an existing system, if we can buy an existing component to address some problems for us, that's usually generic subdomain. So if we ever find a way to plug into existing way to handle registrations or uh, completely delegate the registrations and user management to uh, external component, then this component and all its like small environment, it will be called generic domain mm-hmm. because something generic. Would like the send grid email component or something be as, its own subdomain as well? Or is that like just a piece of something? It's a solution. It's an existing generic solution mm-hmm. that like which is large enough to have uh, its own language, which we uh, linked to our system. So would we call that a subdomain? Yes, it will be a subdomain. Well, it's large enough. It will be subdomain, and this will be generic subdomain. Okay. Applied generic solution. Got it. Okay, and if we have to develop an additional functionality that doesn't belong to the core domain, but this functionality is important more or less for the, for the entire system, it will be a supporting domain. Like this hobbyist language thing, mm-hmm. it will be a different language. So, and it's like it's a different set of functionality that depends on the core domain that will be supporting the domain. Right. It's more relevant to the business problem of the core, and it's not really generically reusable like an email, client, an email service or something. Something that we develop ourselves. Ah. Uh, and it's still, it's not as important as core, so it's supporting stuff. Is that a, actually a key part of the definition? Because that's really a good attribute, which is something you develop yourself. Like you, you tend to develop yourself, yeah. Okay. Well, that's my understanding. Okay. Okay, and so uh, I've named this thing tenant. Probably after this episode, we'll rename it to something else. And so the tenant or the persons getting this done instance. And I started bashing out commands and events for that. Yep, and uh, I'm looking inside the messages.ddd file with the DSL language. Is that where you are? Yep. Obviously, we have tenant created because that's where like the creation event or initialization or preparation event is that what all aggregates tend to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't actually add a method for that because I'm not writing a, an executable code yet. Mm-hmm. I'm just putting together some definitions. Mm-hmm. Then I decided that we'll have a capture action method. And when this method happens, we'll have an action captured event. Okay. So, uh, and here I was maybe uh, optimizing prematurely. I decided that when we capture action, we need to pass the name of the action we capture and also the request ID. Mm-hmm. Simply because if we're in the web UI, and that's something I've learned from uh, the previous systems, you want to submit the request. Like you, wa- you want uh, to create new action in the web UI, and then you want to show that the next screen where this action was created. So since we know that it, take, it might take some time for the uh, secures model to go from the command to events, and then to updated projections. Mm-hmm. So we need some way, to, uh, some identifier, uh, which is generated on the client side. And using this identifier, the client, after sending the command, can start pulling the views to see if this data has already finally arrived for the entire system. Yeah, it's your FedEx tracking number for your request, <laughs> your command. Yeah, yeah got it. Uh, and I actually, I've decided, let's try something, maybe smart, maybe stupid. Uh, when we capture action, mm-hmm. if we request, then the actions unique identifier, it will be based on the GUID that was submitted. So our actions, our projects, our contacts within the tenant, they will have their IDs, internal IDs, which are just simply GUIDs. Mm-hmm. Is the request in the capture action, is request a GUID as well? Yes. Okay. So this way it uh, will be random enough and the client can generate it. 
Okay. But the action GUID is, has nothing to do with the request GUID. No. If request GUID is provided, then action GUID is that GUID. Oh, got it. So this way, if in client UI you're like trying to create an action and you're submitting the request ID, then you can immediately start pulling the views to see if the action with this ID has arrived or not. Oh, got it. That's the whole, yeah, the whole point of, duh. Yeah, if you send a command, you want the event to correlate it. It's the correlation. It's the primary key, basically, for the uh, request. Yes. Yeah. Although, at some point, we might be interested, maybe, when action is captured, when we send capture action, then, at the server side, we create new action with ID based on GUID, and then maybe we also assign it a unique integral number. This way, this action can be addressed or looked up by other GUID or by integral number, mm-hmm. just to make sure that web URLs in the web UI are nice looking. Uh, or maybe not in that. Hmm. Okay. And then in action captured event, I've added a new field called time. Simply because, as I've discovered in other uh, look at solutions, in any system, you end up at some point as the system develops, you want to build kind of activity list or a Facebook wall of changes that happened in this, during the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, this way, it's worth uh, to capture time in every event. Now, just a question on how you do it at Locad, because time obviously is tricky sometimes. The time it's going to put in there is whatever the current server time is, I guess, right? It's server time in UTC. In UTC, okay. So do you guys actually take some, well, you don't even control the server time, right? Azure does. Yeah, so it's more or less precise. Okay, cool. So you can pretty much rely on Azure's server time and you just put the UTC value and they're done. Yes. Okay. Well, obviously the UTC time might be off by a few seconds, but right. like time is used on, not for exact ordering, but merely for human readability. Mm-hmm. And don't really care if the precision is up to seconds. Right. Agreed. Okay. Okay. Also started adding more commands and events and uh, tried to actually start implementing the aggregate for that. So uh, the commands and events I've started adding is like create project, project created, then uh, remove action, action removed from project, complete action, action completed, etc., etc. And in core domain project, I've actually started defined tenant aggregate, tenant app service, and tenant state. Mm-hmm. Implement this functionality. Okay. So uh, in tenant app service, I now have a tenant app service or application service. It has a handler for capture action command. And this handler calls on capture action method on the tenant aggregate. Mm, yep, see it. Okay. And I also started like implementing the event handlers for that. And for instance, I uh, even have now event handlers for events which are not produced yet. Where's that at? Uh, go to the tenant state. Tenant state. Okay. Oh, and actually, like uh, I created a slightly new constructor for the tenant state. So uh, now the tenant state is generated from the static method. It's called build state from history. Hmm. So basically, just slightly more explicit version. Mm-hmm. Because previously we were generating tenant state by passing innumerable of events to the constructor. Mm-hmm. And now it reads better. Like when you build state from the history, you create new tenant state, and then you, uh, for each of the events, you make state realize that this event happened. I see. Well, just a small uh, thing. Okay. 
And then, for instance, like when we have a method, when uh, action was assigned to a project in tenant state, I've uh, started actually, like in this tenant state, we'll have multiple entities. So we'll have inside this tenant state actions with their unique GUID IDs. We'll have uh, the projects that reside in this tenant with their unique GUID IDs, etc., etc. And like these entities, they'll have their own representation inside this state. I've decided to code these representations as kind of small aggregates that follow the uh, command query responsibility segregation as well. So for instance, below the tenant state, I have a sealed class called action info. Oh, I see it. So uh, this small uh, action entity, it's an entity because it has unique ID, which is action ID. It is managed by the state. So and it, this action info will exist only for mere seconds. Mm-hmm. Because it's always created and modified when aggregate is loading its state. And then uh, after the aggregate executed uh, commands published events, the state is discarded. So this action in four instance, class instance, will be discarded and destroyed. Okay. And what is its main purpose again? Uh, the main purpose is uh, to hold the action information uh, to represent the action inside the uh, tenant state. And so uh, this action, it doesn't have any public setters. Mm-hmm. So uh, we can only call methods or query fields. So the action is like a small uh, black box uh, that follows the command and responsibility segregation as well. Okay, makes sense. Okay, and so for instance, when we have a, a method on tenant state uh, method which handles event called action moved to project, mm-hmm. it, what, what it does, it looks up the action from the action lists which is in memory, it looks uh, to projects, old project and new project from, from the project lists. Then it calls action move to project method. And then for each of the project, it calls a new project add action, old project remove action. Mm-hmm. And the implementations are hidden like they're inside the methods. Action info and project info. Mm. And in this case, like each of the smaller entities which reside inside the huge uh, tenant state, I decided that they should not contain reference to other entities, even, even though they can. Uh, this way, the entity contains references only to the IDs. So action in getting things done can be sent to a project, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, in this case, our action info class can have a reference to the project ID. Mm-hmm. And actual rule that if action is assigned to a project, then this project should actually obviously exist. Uh, it's not enforced with inside the action info. It's enforced inside the tenant state. Uh, where at? Up above? Basically, it's in the code. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the code of the tenant state above the these classes? Yes. Yeah, okay. So action info and project info is just a convenient holder with descriptive language that holds current representation of the getting things done action. Mm-hmm. This class resides within this aggregate state. We will be able to evolve this implementation as we see fit because like, it's, uh, this stuff is transit anyway. Mm-hmm. And it's hidden from everybody else. Well, yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. And, but so far, like when I started like, evolving the language, what I was trying to do is to make sure that even the state methods or uh, aggregate methods later, that their implementations are human-readable, more or less. Mm-hmm. So uh, when we're reading, for instance, implementation for action moved 
to project handler within the state. It says like first we, what we do we, is we call action move to project. So we uh, move from old project to new project, mm-hmm. and then new project add action ID, old project remove action ID. I'm reading the the inside the when method there, and yeah, it's like just by reading it, you you pretty much know what's going on. Uh, and also in this code, even in the tenant state, I was adding a lot of checks. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, in the method of action in four, mark is completed. So uh, this method will be executed usually when tenant state handles event that uh, action was completed. So there I have a check. Like if we try to process the event where action was marked as completed where while it was already completed, then probably something wrong in our business logic. Mm-hmm. And I'll throw the exception. Okay. It means that the code is not important. It means that if we happen to process the same event twice, if we happen to receive the same event twice, uh, it will throw an exception. But right now we're trying to develop a domain language and we're trying to develop the domain language as strict as possible, as explicit and helpful as possible. So all insane stuff has to be discarded. Later on, we can discard this uh, sanity checks. But for now, they're like really good and they'll help to develop. Okay. Okay. And I've started coding this stuff and I also started uh, adding the tests. But, well, not tests, just test fixtures, importing them from being the worst being the worst samples in the first module. I also started, like, I kind of created getting things done that console. I created uh, getting things done that server, which are uh, currently empty placeholders. But, like, they don't serve any particular purpose. Okay. Because maybe I should host the app domain right now in the console, so we'll have the interactive exp- uh, domain explorer shell like we had in the last samples of being the worst one. The factory yeah. console, yep. Or should have a server which can be accessed by the console, etc., etc. So currently, although the stuff contains some code, and actually server contains some references for the service stack host, they don't serve any purpose. So getting things done console is part of exploration. It doesn't have anything. Core domain, it contains the core logic, the logic of the application services for our core domain. Uh, core domain tests, it contains test stubs for the core domain. Getting things done, that published language, it contains like some master definitions, which we arrived at, and server is nothing currently. And uh, no, so nothing at all right now is executable, even the tests, right? Like so, We don't have any tests right now. Right, so there's no tests, and the console is just a placeholder, so there's nothing, when you know, in Visual Studio, there's nothing to go run when you're doing this language exploration exercise, are you really just trying to see, like when you go into the tenant state and you're writing calls to these methods, if the words seem to be flowing and stuff like that, is that really all we care about right now? That the codes, the code is compiling, uh, that the words are flowing, and actually the information flows properly. So when I'm trying to move project, or when I'm trying to move action from one project to another, that I actually, inside the action at that point, I already have all the information. Mm. Uh, to execute that. I see. So basically, I'm currently looking at the big puzzle, Jigsaw, and I'm just t- uh, looking at small areas and saying, okay, do this to fit together. Okay, let's try to look at it from, the, from a different angle, etc., etc. I see. And uh, how I see that this project will uh, develop in the short term is that uh, more, a few more methods will be added 
like a few more implementations will be added to the aggregate and app service. Then probably the console shell will be defined. That allows to run your small getting things done, a single tenant of getting things done uh, locally. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, switch the local version from event store in memory to event store on the disk. So we have a local console for getting things done. Mm-hmm. That's persistent, actually be used. Mm-hmm. Then maybe add conflict resolution service. This way you can have uh, multiple consoles running. And if you make change in one console, then when you try to push, and you can currently try to make changes from the other console, that the other console will be able to resolve conflicts. Hmm. And then maybe we'll try to push the events service to the server and then have uh, consoles interacting with the server. It's just uh, ideas. I'm not sure how exactly it will work out. Sure. But as far as listeners are concerned, the in the snapshot of the code that will be referenced in this episode, the two main projects are the gtd.core domain and gtd.published language. That's where really all of your heavy work's been going in this one. Exactly. And uh, we went through the core domain pretty well. I just wanted to clarify with the gtd.published language project, that's what we discussed last time where that's just our normal messages and our messages.ddd stuff that we talked about with the uh, factory examples uh, in in the first uh, expedition. It looks exactly the same, just different words, obviously, for this domain in there. Um, The stuff that we put in there, we associated published language sort of with contracts and maybe eventually the the exposed APIs in the future. So these messages in here and the language we're speaking in there and the published language, you literally mean published language, right? Like that might end up in some web API spec that people are using to have iOS devices call this uh, core domain. Yes, absolutely. Okay, cool. So uh, this, this published language will be used, for instance, by the domain console, domain shell, which wants to actually allow playing with adding new actions, adding new projects, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Language will be used by the web client, which wants to save to add actions or projects to the tenant which is running on some server. This published language will be used by the hobbyist subdomain. So uh, the hobbyist subdomain, what it will be doing, it will be presenting users with a different like terminology, with a different web UI, but internally it will be still using this published language. Right, literally calling the command capture action or whatever. Exactly. Yes. So this is published language for the core domain, uh, which will be used by all the other subdomains around it. Makes sense. Okay. So what should we do for homework if there is any, or what uh, would be the next steps we should do? Uh, So for the homework, the suggestion for this episode is just to fork uh, the repository explore it, then add a local branch on your repository, uh, maybe with your name, and try adding more methods. Uh, Try adding more commands and events according Mm. to the exam methodology. Inside of messages.dd. Yes. Uh, And then when you have this done, like we can talk about uh, the domain, and I'll be doing the same. Cool. Sounds good. Okay. Well, thanks for writing some code while you were uh, feeling sick, and... uh, I'm glad you were able to crank that out so we had something to talk about. So uh, I look forward to messing around with this stuff. And until next time, please leave your comments, questions, and or feedback at beingtheworst.com. 
and we're at Twitter at being the worst. We should start making up commercials for Locat or something. We're not because they're letting us, you know, host the MP3s on the on their servers and stuff. I feel like all the other podcasts, we should uh, have some kind of like, you know, this segment is brought to you by Locad. Do you need data platform services? You know, <laughs> whatever. Like that. Uh, I just feel guilty that we don't ever give them any props. So thank you, Locad and team. So anyway. Okay. Uh, we already have enough uh, commercial intros and props for the next 10 episodes, so we can skip that for the next 10 episodes. <laughs> Got it. So anyway. All right, dude. Well, uh, have a good uh, rest of your work day, and uh, I'll talk to you next time. Yep, and please try to find a better name for the tenant thingy. Uh-huh. And, okay, listeners, talk to you soon. Well, wait, Bye-bye. if we're all going to go off and looking for a better thing for the tenant, maybe give it one last stab at, like, in in a sentence, what you're wishing that thing to represent. You you were hoping to describe what? I'm hoping to describe... Okay, uh, there is a blah-blah. <laughs> and blah-blah, uh, I didn't, uh, like, it's... Uh, identifies the state of all the projects, actions, and contexts associated with one person. Got it. So, I don't know. Maybe it, uh, it's better to keep it as blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, who knows? But yeah, I'll think about that. Because uh, again, you can get the fluffy word, like what would you call that in fluffy land? You know, gamer guy. But in the uh, core domain, probably want something uh, not as fluffy and, and pretty descriptive of uh, basically every potential action that Renat could ever care about in his entire life. So, anyway. There was one trick that I've learned. If you have a term that, well, if you have something that you don't have a definition term for, mm-hmm. but it, it might exist, uh, and sometimes it's even better than to use somewhat matching term to completely come up with a ridiculously sounding term and use it there for some time. Yeah, until something makes sense and until then, I like it, yeah. You just put in whatever, yeah. So, it- uh, episode if we don't come up with a better term we'll just keep it blah blah or something <laughs> whatever you come up with we'll have some hybrid of uh, we'll have you just pick any random Russian word and then I'll pick any random English slang and we'll slam it together <laughs> anyway alright dude uh, thanks everyone we'll talk to you guys uh, next time uh, see ya thanks bye bye, bye.